Welcome to the Bitcoin in Africa show. From Dakar to Dar es Salaam, from Cairo to Cape Town, we are the voice of Bitcoin in Africa. Part of our special Africa Bitcoin conference um, episode of the Bitcoin in Africa show. I'm here with Jude Ogani, who is the Deputy General of Paxful, Deputy General Counsel of Paxful. Thank you. <laughs> Thanks for being here, Jude. Thank you very much, Charlene. It's a pleasure to be with you. So, Jude, we're here at the Africa Bitcoin Conference, and this is the this is a historic event. This is the first time we have had a Pan-African convening of Bitcoiners on the continent of Africa. Tell me what this means to you and why this is important. Oh, wow. Um, right out the gate with a tough question. <laughs> no, it, 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 is, it is a moment of singular importance to me. Um, it has, a, obviously, I'm in the sector. So from a professional standpoint, this is just blowing my mind. But there's a deeper, more emotional resonance. And I think it's fitting that it's taking place in Ghana because Ghana, uh, from its founding, uh, from its independence, Kwame Nkrumah and others were very focused on a pan-African kind of philosophy, right? Harkening back all the way to Black Star and Marcus Garvey. So if you even wanted to extrapolate from not just being pan-African, but being, you know, sort of all about the African diaspora. And I hope that's something that we get a chance to talk about, uh, you know, as well. And so I'm somebody who is... Um, whose father is Nigerian, whose mother is African-American from Alabama. And so when you think about what this means to have this convening in this place of people who are trying to think about all the ways in which legacy systems have held them back and how determined we are all as Africans to seize control of the narrative, to say centralized systems have really let us down a primrose path. How can we recapture are the benefit of our dignity, of our work, of our identity. Um, those are the things that get me, you know, this sort of hairs raising on the, on, the, on the back of my arms. And so the fact that it's taking place here in Ghana, in Accra, and that this is actually my first time being in Accra in Ghana, oh, is just, I'm over the moon. Yeah. I'm over the moon. Now, and I, I love that you brought in the history of Ghana into your answer because I think it's so significant. Now, we know that Ghana was the first African country to get independence from colonial rule. That is significant. Yes. To your point, Ghana has always been a place of convening to connect the West uh, and to, to Africa. And then now this, it does make sense for it to be, for this conference to be in Ghana. So you talked about your childhood. So I want to take a, a step back. Tell us about your childhood, your background, and then um, I'd love to hear about your Bitcoin journey. Of course. Um, so I, as I said, you know, I was born to a Nigerian father and an African-American mother. Um, I was born in the U.S. in Washington, D.C. Um, and so I represent the 202 very, very hard till today. Uh, but uh, when I was about seven or eight, um, my siblings and I moved with my father, uh, the entire family moved to Nigeria. This was happening in the wake of the after the uh, Biafra Civil War ended in 1970, uh, there was this huge need to uh, try to rehabilitate the country 
uh, restitch it together. Uh, and so the call went out to a number of Nigerians who were in the diaspora to return uh, and help rebuild the country. Uh, and my father was one of the people who heard that call uh, and heeded the call. So we all moved to Nigeria. So, Did you move to Lagos? Uh, no, no, we moved to a town called uh, Enugu, which is in the east. Enugu. Yes. And uh, uh, so yeah, I repped the 042 as well. Um, so, so I grew up in Enugu and uh, went to um, all the way through school, uh, all the way through college. And after college, uh, my dad said, uh, don't you want to go back to the U.S. to further your education? And, you know, at the time I just graduated from, you know, I just got a law degree. I was practicing law uh, in Enugu. You know, I was happy. I was, you know, so I was like, no, I don't really feel the need to. And then he kind of gave me that look, right? And if you have Nigerian parents, you know the look, right? As in, that was not a rhetorical question, buddy. You know, so I found myself on a plane to, uh, to the U.S., back to D.C., uh, and I said, well, you know, I've, I've already gone to law school, so I got to go back to law school? So I was, I was, now, Nigeria, you could do, in Nigeria, you could do law as a first degree. So okay. essentially it was, you know, like I just did an undergraduate degree and then went to law school. But I thought that it would bore me to do it all over again, right? Not realizing that it was very, very different. Studying law in the U.S. was very, very different. But I decided to team it with, uh, I did a dual degree, so I did a JD MBA. And uh, that was the way I said to myself, okay, if I do the JD MBA, then at least, you know, I'm doing something new and interesting. Um, but that really prompted uh, my interest in business. And so, you know, I thought I was going to be this, you know, Perry Mason type guy in the courtroom just blowing people away with, you know, my rhetoric and all of that. But I quickly, you know, moved over to the business side uh, in the negotiation and securities and, and all of that transactional work. So after I left um, uh, Georgetown, I went to uh, work um, with a firm called Sullivan and Cromwell um, in New York. Uh, and uh, over a succession of moves, uh, decided that I really wanted to work in-house. Interesting. And you were doing corporate law? I was doing corporate in law. In what area? I so was doing securities, M&A, okay. yeah, you know, you know, finance, corporate finance, right? Um, over a succession of moves, uh, went in-house with a private equity-owned uh, company. Uh, did a number of uh, work with them for a number of years, including taking on some business operating roles, which I really found um, very, very interesting. Um, stretched me, uh, challenged me, but um, I really liked the business end of things. Um, and then about 2019, you know, so, you know, 2015, 2016, that's when I started hearing about Bitcoin and crypto and all of that. And, and but, where did you hear about it? Did you hear about it among your colleagues that were no, lawyers? No, not at all. Okay. Not at all. It was not even a ripple, not even nothing. It was reading, um, going on the internet, and you know, hearing some people talk, talking in sort of chat rooms, and you know, you kind of try to go down a, the rabbit hole a lot, uh, a little bit, but the terminology, 
the jargon was just so, it was like they had this huge wall up. I couldn't, and I don't have a tech background. I don't have a technical background. So it was hard for me to really get into it. Um, but it was always in the back of my mind, it was like this thing that would never go away. So 2019, I finally get to the point where with my then company, um, I say, you know, I'm done. I want to do something else. And what is that something else? Right before the pandemic. Yes. 2019, right before the pandemic. Yes, 2019, right before the pandemic. And I'd always had this idea that I was going to take the skills, whatever skills I had acquired, educationally, professionally, and put it in service of my people, you know, you know where I spent my formative years in Sub-Saharan Africa. But it, for a long time, it wasn't really, the path forward wasn't really clear to me as to how I was going to do that, right? But I knew I wanted to do that. And it was one of those things where you just say, well, maybe you should just, like as Nigerians would say, just face your front and, you know, just do the work that's in front of you and don't worry about, you know, um, whatever things may be tugging at you. But it was, I guess it's one of those things, and entrepreneurs will recognize this, where these, there's something nagging at you that you just can't let go of. And so you finally have to just pivot and face it and say, what is, what is God? What is the universe trying to tell me? So 2019, I finally said, I know I need to do something else. I'm not sure yet what that is. But I tell you what, for the first time in probably 20 years, I have the bandwidth now to study this thing called blockchain and crypto. So I took a course. Uh, I took an online course uh, from you know Oxford University on blockchain strategy and I, I'm not lying to you when I say that from the first second I took that course right I knew this was my path I knew this was my path and I knew that I was going to marry you know, again my my educational background my professional skills as a lawyer with this burgeoning industry and put it in service of people back home. And so that's what I've essentially been doing since 2019. Um, now, as far as my, my um, journey, so, so 2019, 2020, I was thinking about things, I was writing, I was blogging about how blockchain could unleash innovation in Sub-Saharan Africa and I was doing a little bit of consulting. And then I heard Ray Youssef of Paxful at Bitcoin uh, 2021 talk about, talk about Nigerians. I remember that presentation. Oh my God. <laughs> and I was like, so. Blown away, right? I was blown away. <laughs> I, was I, I, was like, I was like, who is, who is this dude? And how does he know us so well? Like, right. right? How does he know us so well? How does he know? Uh, so, so, but it was clear it was clear the depth of affection that he had for the, for, for the people here on the continent and particularly Nigeria and how, he, how much he yearned for them to reap the rewards of their passion, of their perseverance, of their creativity. And so I said, I don't know how, but I gotta figure out a way to work with that dude. So, um, you know, fast forward, uh, you know, a year um, and uh, I saw on LinkedIn they had an opening in the legal department and I just 
you know. Yeah, I just put in the thing and next thing they call me back. And it just so happened that years, just months before, weeks before, I'd written an article on Medium about regulation of crypto in Nigeria. Look at that. And, uh, what I love about your story, I mean, your skill set is so specialized and so difficult to have because it's not only law, there's U.S. law plus Nigerian law plus context of Nigerian culture and African culture. There are not many people that can do that. Oh, plus Bitcoin, yeah. right? <laughs> right? There are not many people that have that skill set. That's the kind of incredibly specialized skill set that this industry needs, right? So it's so, um, it's so powerful that you made that transition. Um, you know, I don't believe in coincidences. I, you know, I, you know, we always say Bitcoin is God's work. I do think Bitcoin is God's work because we're going to save the world. This is currency of humanity. And so I, I definitely think God was moving uh, you in that direction. And um, I, I just think that's a wonderful story that more people need to hear. Um, so let's talk about, so you've been at Paxful, I guess, a couple years now. One year. One, one year. One year. But if you're counting in dog years, it's more like... Listen, <laughs> no, it's been five. This 2022 right. counts as five years. That's, and that's what I say. So, that's what yeah. I say. Tell us about, like, you know, what's a what's day-to-day -day life, what's the day-to-day -day life experience of a Bitcoin lawyer or a lawyer for a Bitcoin peer-to-peer -peer exchange focused on Africa? What does that look like? It's... Every day is unlike the next, which is what I like about it. It's not routine. But one day I'm dealing with renewing our money transmission licenses in various states. The next day I'm dealing with an employment issue. Um, uh, the very next day, and that's actually what is happening today, I'm working on a white paper uh, you know, that we hope to present to the CBN and to other governments in Sub-Saharan Africa on ways in which they can have their cake and eat it too. Meaning they can have, yes, you can have KYC, you can have AML, and you can have privacy, and you can have Bitcoin, right? And I think the fear, if I you know, ascribe the, uh, the best of motives to them, right? Um, because I suspect that there are some other considerations at work as well, but you know, to take them at their word, um, they are concerned about scams and frauds and, you know, all of that stuff, right? And I think it's important for us to educate the um, gatekeepers uh, on the regulatory front. Um, I'm not one of those. I am massively pro-Bitcoin, but I am not so much a Bitcoin maximalist that I, I say we don't need any stinking regulations. We do. We do. And if anything, the events of the recent months have shown us the limits of a philosophy that says, hey, man, it's a wild, wild west out there, you know, self-regulate. Right. So that's not going to happen. So so dealing with the regulatory issues and being on the on the forefront of them, as in I'm not just advising my internal client on how to comply with regulations. I'm part of the process, hopefully, to design said regulations, to provide input from the stakeholder, to say, guys, FTX is not a crypto issue. It is a centralization issue. And if you understand the difference between centralized systems and DeFi or P2P systems, 
you understand it's not about crypto. And so many people are getting the narrative wrong. But the good thing about being in the role that I'm in is you have the opportunity to help shape that narrative and to help put in place regulations that, you know, don't capitulate to the industry, but are responsive to the industry, to responsive and more important than being responsive to the industry, are responsive to where to the users, because this is all about the users. This is all about helping to, again, unleash the benefits of the innovations that these users are bringing about. Ray will tell you, you know, my, my folks are hacking the system, not in a you know, nefarious no, way, yeah, right? Not, not in a nefarious way, but they're just coming up with use cases that as we design these systems, we never could have thought of. But they're bringing, unleashing creativity. Should they not re reap the rewards of it? Should the should the governments themselves not reap the rewards of it? So, the, you know, this I could go on and on about this. But the point is, you know, to be on the forefront of as this thing, you know, we are literally or metaphorically building the plane as we are flying it is very exciting to me. I'm really glad you brought up regulation because unfortunately to your point, whenever Bitcoiners talk about regulation, I believe there's a really unhealthy expectation. So I'm a former regulator, I used to work for the Fed. I, I have no issues with regulation, we need it. Um, unfortunately, Bitcoiners shake their heads and close their eyes, you know, and then we have FTX and then we have Mt. Gox and we have all these things that are pointing us in the directions of where the risks are. So you regulate the risks and then you protect the people. So what do you think, as you think about, like based on, it's 2022, we've had multiple crypto lenders fail. We've had, you know, one of the biggest crypto hedge funds, uh, uh, Three Arrows Capital fail, and we've had FTX fail a couple of uh, weeks ago. As you think about regulations, what do you think is needed? And, and this is from the US side, right? And then as you think about, let's, let's take Nigeria, because they're doing a lot of, there's been a lot of movement in the Nigerian regulation space. What are you hoping that happens on the Nigerian regulation side? So U.S. and Nigeria. Okay, so let's talk about the U.S. first. So on the U.S. front, um, frankly, if you, if I'm, if I'm being candid, I think that in in many ways, the um, FTX debacle, the Luna debacle, you know, a number of other other things. Um, are the result of not so much the absence of regulation, but the approach of U.S. regulators to regulation, which is regulation by enforcement, right? And you, you can't have that. You can't have a situation where you say, hey, if you're thinking about some innovative product, come talk come to, to them, right? And then they come in and go, <laughs> bam, you know? They, so, 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 so then the, the, the incentive is to go offshore. And that's exactly what these companies have done. And that's what these companies have done. And that's when you run into issues. And so if you want to get the regulatory architecture right, right, you've got to align the incentives. You cannot have regulation by enforcement. Let us, you know, declare what the rules of the road are, right? Industry input, um, consumer input, stakeholders at the table. Let's divide something, devise something together that everybody can abide by. We know the rules are clear and we, and we, and we proceed ac accordingly. The other thing that I, I think we need to do is, and you're, you're, you, know, you, you have a background as a regulator, so you understand this, 
there is this jurisdictional dispute between the SEC and the CFTC, right? And every, you know, and, 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 and I can't tell whether any particular proposal coming out from one agency or the other is driven by what they consider to be the merits of the issue, as opposed to they want to arrogate more power to themselves, right? And so we can't have that. So that balkanization, that schism, we've got to get around it. I also think, frankly, we, stop, we, not, we need to stop forcing everything into this traditional construct of is it or is it not a security or a commodity, right? It's a digital asset. Some things will be performed like securities. Some things will not. You can't just force that round peg, that square peg into a round hole. So that's on the U.S. front. On the Nigeria front, on the African front, I think precisely because of the shortcomings on the U.S. front, I've argued that African countries have the opportunity to quote-unquote leapfrog some of these outmoded systems. They don't have, for example, Nigeria says, oh, we presume that every digital asset is a security. But when you go and look at the actual law, they don't have a definition, as the U.S. laws do, of an, what is or is not an investment contract. And that's the way, that's the back door for regulation of cryptos, as you know. So if you don't have the investment contract definition and you just have the typical definition of securities, stocks, you know, this and that. No, no. Um, you know, digital assets are not securities, but they don't need to be because the only reason you want them to be securities is to apply, is to tax them and to apply anti-fraud and anti-manipulation rules. So if that's what you want to do, just apply them. Don't just, you know, give a dog a bad name and hang it. Just, you know, say, this is what we want all digital assets, regardless of whether you're a commodity, a security, or something else. You need to have robust KYC AML. You need to have robust anti-fraud, anti-manipulation rules. And then I would further say that there needs to be a distinction, per our earlier discussion, between centralized exchanges, and there is a role for centralized exchanges in, in, in this area, and P2P. Because P2P, if you, if you, you know, hearkening back to say Glass-Steagall on the US side, right? The same things that FTX did is what happened 100 years ago with National Citibank. And that's what led to the separation of commercial banking from investment banking. That's what led to the 33 Act. That's what led to the 34 Act. That's what led to the 40 Act. That's what led to the creation of the Securities and Exchange Commission. That's what led to the formation of the FDIC and Federal Deposit Insurance, because they were taking customer funds and engaging in these highly speculative ventures, right? So they that's why MF Global failed too. Exactly. <laughs> they so did you the same thing. you you privatize the profits and you socialize the losses, right? There is, it, this FTX debacle is not new. And for anybody who is a student of financial history, they know it's not yeah. about crypto at all. No. It's just about the convergence of the public funds and the sort of private sidecar that is doing these risky investments. And because there was no law. And because there was no law. And why again, was there no law, right? To the point of the regulators being right. very, not slow, but I'll say cautious. <laughs> cautious to actually figure out to, to give clarity in the industry exactly. yeah so so i think here in africa regulators have the opportunity 
to leapfrog all of that BS and just enact a system that is focused concretely and directively, directly on digital assets, puts in place disclosure regimes, leverages some of the innovations that are taking place already, like the National Identif Identification Number, BVN, in Nigeria, right? where they're going beyond the question of identity and they're starting to attack questions of privacy where now you can randomize the NIN. You can randomize and, 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 and the government is saying all the vendors have to have this system where you have this digitized token. So before you would, everybody would rattle off their national identification number. And if, you, and, and if too many people have it, that's obviously um, a, an issue. But now you have to randomize it. Okay. So that gets you down the path of pseudonymization, right? And you can start to introduce things like, you know, uh, zero trust pro protocols to really attack the issue of deterring fraud and, 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 and ensuring privacy, but making sure that you, do, again, have robust KYC and AML. I'm saying, bottom line, African countries have the ability now and should jump at the opportunity to out-innovate their peers in the Western world. And to that end, in your role at Paxful, are you helping to push that message? You, you guys are meeting individually with uh, country governments to say, hey, these are not, you know, this is how you should be thinking about this technology and perhaps putting together laws? Yes. That's great, because I think that's one of the themes that I heard um, someone mentioned on day one of the Africa Bitcoin Conference. We need to be you know, having more conversations with regulators, more yeah. conversations with politicians, because we can't just be in a bubble yeah. talking about Bitcoin. Um, so in, in, in the conversations that you've had, what, how have you been received? What has been the reception? The reception has been good, actually. And they want to know more. Um, they want to they want to learn more. Um, they are coming in with some amount of skepticism because, of course, we're interested parties. Um, but I think it is a healthy skepticism. I don't I have no quarrel with that. I don't say, you know, what is that? Everybody's wearing these T-shirts that say don't trust verify. I, I, I think if we ask that of others, um, I think it's only fair that others ask it of us. And so show me exactly how this solution that you say de-risks you know bitcoin as a medium of exchange if we went down the path to greater adoption show me how how, how exactly does that work don't just write it on a white paper or you know sort of put on a powerpoint how does it actually work at a practical level and i think it's going to be an iterative process because there's some education involved, right? Um, I actually think that's the first thing that we need to be doing, which is focusing on education. And then after you educate, somebody comes back and they begin to ask questions as they get increasingly informed, right? And then you sort of go, you know, like round and round and round and you get to, you know, a good place. So yes, that's, that's happening. We'd love to have it more, happen more often, um, but we're very, very happy with the reception so far. No, I think that's great. I think I don't think we spend enough time in the Bitcoin world talking about regulation in a uh, reasonable way. And I think we have no choice now. With the collapse of FTX, we've lost a decent amount of public trust. We've got to we've got to figure out how to make sure the narrative makes sense going forward. 
I want to spend a little more time uh, back on Bitcoin. Um, what excites you most about Bitcoin? Where do I start? Um, so every time I think I'm excited by something in Bitcoin, I come to a conference like this and I see the ways in which people are building and, and, I, and, I, and I just get even more um, excited. But, but as a Nigerian American, who is constantly getting calls from the village. <laughs> please, please. We need this, we need this. We know this, you know, you know everybody in America is rich, right? To the, to the people in the village, every, everybody in America is rich. So um, remittances, uh, right? And facilitating remittances are so huge. But I wanna go beyond remittances because and that was why I was so excited by the strike um, uh, presentation today. Yeah. You know, I, I mean, I was just fangirling all over the place. I like I downloaded the app. I went up to him. I was like, please, can I get a copy of your presentation? And that is this. Right. So PwC comes out with a paper. I think it was about three or four months ago. And they say that, you know, what we all know to be true, that um, the greatest resource that these African countries have is the human resource, yeah. not as people, right? And so far we've been focused on remittances and frankly, but for remittances, Nigeria would be a failed state if it's not already one. Um, but the larger opportunity is to um, put the young Nigerians to work in the country so that they don't have to japa they don't have to leave unless they absolutely want to. And nobody wants to leave. Nobody. I mean, honestly, well, some I people do. Wanna, I didn't want to leave. But if, years ago, I didn't leave. if you could have a good life yes. and make a living wage and take care of your family exactly. and build your community, have your own business, why would you leave? Exactly. So, so put these guys to work. Let's have a two-way corridor where you've got remittances coming in, but you also have people on the ground who are doing work on a remote, outsourced basis and they are leveraging Bitcoin and Lightning to get paid the way they want to get paid instantaneously, right? And think about what that would do to Nigeria's balance of payments, what it would do to the Naira uh, rate. You know, everybody's crying about the rate at which the Naira and the CD are depreciating, right? But it's almost as if they haven't made the connection that, yes, that's because there's too little too few local dollars, local currencies chasing, you know, too few, uh, 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 you know, dollars. You have the opportunity, Bitcoin and Lightning and other innovations allow you to flip that narrative and to have inbound Forex, inbound Bitcoin, inbound stable coins. And that is actually going to help stabilize the local currency. So from an enlightened self-interest perspective, it's not clear to me why any African government would be against this. Yeah, and then for the context of folks that may be watching this, the, the announcement that we heard from Strike, who is a U.S.-based uh, Bitcoin provider now, this is the first time ever you can actually be in the U.S. and send, um, send U.S. dollars to Nigeria, and a Nigerian in Nigeria will get Naira if you send U.S. dollars through Strike to Nigeria. And they're using, it's a partnership between Strike, that is in the U.S., and then Bitnob, which is in that, it's a Bitcoin-based financial services firm. It's historic. I will tell you, when I heard that, my mouth dropped, 
because um, so for my family, like I'm black American, my husband is Nigerian, we have lots of family in Nigeria, we spend money all the time and it is a headache of headaches. And it, it's the thing that just drives me nuts. It is the example of why things are so hard. Like you just can't even, and it's money you've worked hard, it's money you earned, you can't send it to your family. And, and that is the beginning of just, I think, economic prosperity. Um, allowing people to have more control over their money and to build businesses. So I'm, you know, I'm ecstatic and I think the work that you're doing at Paxful is incredible. Um, thank you for being a part of the show today. Uh